so first Peter chapter one, we're going to be picking it up here in verse six. We got through five verses yesterday or last Sunday as we started this new series in first and second Peter, which I'm just excited about going through. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while and, and just has come off uh, a really good kind of time as we wrapped up the gospel of John. And as we saw in the last chapter, you know, Jesus coming and, and bringing that restoration to Peter, right? Who had denied Jesus three times and yet Jesus comes with that threefold question, Peter, do you love me? And when you say, you know, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And here we see now Peter fulfilling that, giving us God's very word, writing this epistle now to Christians who have been dispersed because of persecution, going through trials or going through hardships or going through difficulty. And Peter comes with this word now, tending the sheep, feeding the sheep, wanting to bring this encouragement and hope to them. And, and so what we've been seeing here as we started this is just this plan of salvation here in chapter one, this plan of salvation. And, and right away, Peter gets into it in verse two. I mean, he doesn't waste any time and Peter just starts pouring out these glorious truths that we have because of God, that we've been chosen based on that foreknowledge of God, that we're being sanctified in the spirit, that we've been cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus, all there just in one verse, verse two that Peter gets into to reveal to us this, this salvation that we have, this program of salvation. But then he gets into, again, the reason we can have a living hope is because of this salvation, because there's now an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And we saw there in verse five that God is reserving you for that inheritance. He's gonna get you there. And what a great word that would have been for all these people that are going through hard times, trials, persecution that had been displaced what a great word for them to remind them that listen guys this this isn't your home ultimately this isn't what you are to be putting all your hope and trust in is in this life there's a better life coming and god's got it reserved in heaven for you and so we're going to talk a little bit more today about these things this way of salvation of god we're, we've seen here this program of salvation these first five verses we'll look at today this proposition for salvation what does that look like we're going to see the prophecy in salvation and then the product by salvation which we didn't get to in the first service so we'll save that for next sunday here but these are the things that we're looking at here all to do with this plan of salvation of god here so look at verse six again with me it says this in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while it if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, and I, and I love that here, he starts off by saying in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Oh, not in the trials. Don't say, hey, Praise the Lord for those trials. God, more of them. No, he's saying in this, in these things that we just looked at there in those first five verses, check it all out here there, that again, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, verse two, that we're sanctified of the spirit. We're being set apart for the Lord through the work of the spirit. And, and it's being leading us into the obedience of Christ. Again, and the sprinkling of the blood. So in other words, 
Man, whenever we sing, sin, <laughs> sometimes it's one, or one and the same. No, um, when we sin, we have a covering through the blood of Jesus, right? We're not to be kept down. We're forgiven, we're cleansed through the blood of Jesus. And then he goes on to say that we have this living hope now in verse 3 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, it does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you and you're being reserved for that. So because of these things, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Oh, and, and for us believers, we should be walking around greatly rejoicing because of what God has done for you. Oh, we understand you might go through hard times and trials. You might be in a season right now of great hardship and difficulty. But that doesn't change the fact of what God has done for you. Not only what he's done for you, but what he has in store for you. So Peter says, because of all these things, that's why I wanted to start off this gospel right out of the gates now, or start out this epistle right out of the gates, explaining this gospel to us. Because despite what you go through, it doesn't change who you are now in Christ and what he's done for you and what God has in store for you. So in spite of those current conditions that they're experiencing, the present persecution of these believers, Peter reminds them to rejoice. It's a reminder for us. Are, are, are we living our lives with rejoicing and thanks and praise because of what God has done? Now again, Peter doesn't dismiss the trials, right? He doesn't just, just kind of push them away and go, oh guys, stop bellyaching. Stop whining about what you're going through. Big whoop, right? I mean, Peter's not dismissing them and just saying, Get your, you know, stop fretting about all these things. But here's the thing is that Peter realizes even in the midst of trials, God is doing a good work. God's doing a work. Someone once said, God is not the cause of suffering and pain, but he does not allow it to be wasted. He uses every trial for our good if we commit ourselves to him. That's Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for the good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So God doesn't, he's not the author of these things. We live in a fallen world, right? We live in a world that's under the sway of the wicked one, our our enemies, the prince uh, of the air, Jesus says. So we live in a world that's not perfect. But God doesn't allow all those things that the enemy wants to do to devour your faith, to squash you. He doesn't allow those things to go wasted. He actually uses them. I was reading in, in, in Genesis in my quiet time this week, and I, you know, I love that passage with, with Joseph. And all that he went through, right? Think about the trials that Joseph went through. And yet, God used it all for good. In fact, Joseph's life is Romans 8, 28. And I love what he says as he's finally, you know, revealing himself to his brothers, and, and, and they're still fearing over, is he going to like... Is this where he's going to seek some justice and revenge? But Joseph says, guys, don't worry. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Think about that. You see, no matter what the enemy might try to do against you, God is still greater and bigger and able to work that for the good. It amazes me that he does that. 
There's no way that anybody could have tried to lead Joseph's life in the way to make things turn out the way they did. To where he's sold as a slave, he gets imprisoned, falsely accused, and yet turns out that he's the second in command of the world's greatest empire at the time, Egypt. Who can do that but God? When everything was going against him, it seemed, and yet God was working all over again. So God doesn't waste the trials, the difficulties, the pain you're going through. Understand that, that God wants to do something good out of it. And so we need to look at the fact that trials can serve a purpose. Trials can serve a purpose. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, Peter says. So what purpose can trials serve? Well, first of all, they refine us. Peter gives us the picture uh, of a fire that tests gold, right? He says that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire in verse 7. You hear that? You see that? Tested by fire. So we understand that trials have a purifying effect on us. They refine us. Precious metals and ore are placed in a fire so that all the impurities can kind of rise to the surface. All the impurities can begin to be set apart and, and seen and then taken away by the silversmith. That's what God does oftentimes through our trials. It exposes the things that are not of God, the things that might be even impeding or hindering us in our walk with Him. It allows us to see the stuff that isn't of God, things that might actually weigh us down and trip us up from following Jesus. And so those trials begin to refine us. But not to hurt us, but to make us more valuable. That's what the gold comes out from the fire as becomes more valuable. All the, all the crud and stuff is taken away. All the impurities are taken away. So like gold that becomes more valuable through fire, our faith becomes even more valuable through the trials as we begin to be refined, purified. Secondly, they reveal our faith. Trials give us the opportunity to see if our faith is genuine. Think about that. Now the term acid test originated during times when gold was widely circulated. Nitric acid was applied to an object of gold to see if it was genuine or not. If it was fake, well, that acid would decompose it. And if it was genuine, the gold would be unaffected. That's what what trials essentially do with our faith. It begins to reveal if our faith is real. Are we able to keep going in the midst of difficulty? Or do we crumble? Do we start to blame God, look to God and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I thought being a Christian would make me be exempt from all these things. Well, what's the point of it then? Do we give up? Do we leave and walk away from our faith in the midst of trials? Or does those trials begin to say, all the more, man, I need the Lord now. I'm going to hold on. I want to be anchored to God in this trial because I've got nothing else. Trials begin to see what we're really depending on, what we're really holding on to, what we're really being hopeful for. Trials begin to reveal if our faith is genuine or not. Now notice, listen, trials are not meant to break us. They're not the test to, to you know, put you down or, or, or hurt you to see if you're just going to keep going. 
No, the trials are meant to actually build us up. As we begin to see that our faith is concrete and real, and that we have indeed that living hope in God, it, it strengthens and encourages us. It builds us up. A tried faith is a true faith, and a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Are you allowing those trials in your life to be that acid test for you to say, yeah, I don't need to worry, I don't need to doubt, I don't need to fear, I don't need to blame God or question God. I get to hold on to God all the more through this trial and see that my faith is real and that it is a faith that can be trusted and held on to as the only source of hope that I have in the midst of these things. And thirdly, trials are an opportunity for God to get greater glory as we begin to see his strength. They reflect God's strength. So not not only do trials refine us or reveal our faith, but they begin to reflect that great strength that we have in God. See, these are, are things that God gets to lead through and work through, and he wants to show himself strong when we are going through periods of weakness or trial or hardship. He wants to step in and reveal that he is sufficient in and through those times for us. And when we begin to live our lives where we're so dependent on God and not trusting in ourselves, not saying, well, I'm going through a a rocky week right now, but I'm going to get through it. No, when we go through a rocky week and say, you know what? It's only by the grace of God go I. It's only through his strength and up. What happens? People begin to go, oh, who is this God that you're so heavily leaning on? God gets greater glory when, when the world sees us going through trials and continuing on with a faith in him where they go, I would, have, I would have given up by now. See, there are opportunities for God to get greater glory as he makes himself strong in those situations. That's what happened to Paul, wasn't it? When Paul had that thorn in the flesh and he's praying, Lord, remove this from me. I need, you, I need this gone. God says, ah, Paul, you know what? I'm going to actually just do a work through it. There's going to be an opportunity in the midst of this, for me to demonstrate my power and my strength. And, and, and in your weakness, my strength is going to be evident. That's the promise that God gave Paul there in that situation. He didn't remove the trial or the thorn in the flesh, but he showed. We live now with such a dependency on God that God gets the greater glory for it. And that's what, Our lives exist for. It's for the glory of God, right? Amen? So trials become an opportunity for us to say, God, man, this is an opportunity for you to get greater glory. Now, again, Peter's not saying, well, guys, just, you know, just buck up and and do well. We don't sit here and pray for trials. This is not something that we are hoping for now. But we understand there's purpose to be made through it, that God is accomplishing his things. And notice what Peter says here. I love that in, in verse six, though now for a little while. Do you, do you see that in verse six? Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. He says it's, it's just for a little while. We, we have to remember that, don't we? When we're going through trials, it can feel like an eternity. It can feel like, is there any end in sight? But understand, in the scope of eternity, these things that we're going through in this world are just for a short time. 
after a little while. In light of eternity, this life that we live is just a blip on the radar. James would liken it to just our, our, our life is but a vapor. Now, when that vapor goes up, you don't sit there and watch it for hours going, wow, look at that vapor. So it just disappears in no time. It's gone. There's, there's nothing to it. James says that's what our life is like. It's but a vapor in comparison to eternity. And so we have to stop kind of putting so much stock in the things of this world and the things that we're going through and recognize this is all temporary. It's but for a little while. All trials are going to come to an end. Most, most of it will come to an end in this lifetime. And that just probably means that the Lord's preparing you for the next trial then. And there'll be another trial. And one day they're going to come to an end fully. When our life comes to an end. When we see Jesus face to face and when we're clothed in our eternal bodies, we'll no longer have to deal with suffering and pain and trials. One day it's going to come to an end. And we'll recognize in that day, my friends, that it will have all been worth it. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.18, that I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He, is like he says, I can put the sufferings of this world, and if anybody knew anything about suffering, Paul, come on, right? I mean, this guy was stoned, left for dead, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked. This guy knew what it was like to go through a trial or two, right? And he says, if I put all my sufferings on a scale, the glory that one day we're going to see far outweighs the sufferings that we can endure. And Paul was the one that got a glimpse of what heaven was like. So he knows. He writes about the same idea in 2 Corinthians 4.17, if you're taking notes. That what is awaiting us in heaven is, is going to make everything that we go through in this world worth it. Because God's still at work. God's doing working through all the trials, all the difficulties we encounter. And he's preparing us for our heavenly reward, our inheritance reserved in heaven for you. That's our living hope. So no matter what Peter writes, no matter what's happening to those that he's writing to, saying you have a living hope, trials are temporary, so keep looking at Jesus, glorying in Jesus, rejoicing in all that God has done for you, all that he continues to do for you, all that he has prepared for you. Rejoice in those things. He goes on to say in verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I love that. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter had the the blessing, the benefit of seeing Jesus face to face, walking with Jesus. Over three years, he spent just traveling with Jesus and seeing all these great things that Jesus had done. Pretty awesome, pretty incredible stuff, right? But he says to his audience, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Now, 
There's a lot of people that say, well, if I could just see Jesus, then I believe. Then I'd really put my faith in him. If I could just see Jesus or, or see him do something. But remember Thomas, in, in, in like manner, he's, after the resurrection, unless I see him and I touch you know, the nail prints, his hands and see this wound in his side, I, I'm not going to believe. And eventually, Jesus granted that to Thomas, and Thomas got to see. He says, oh, my Lord, my Savior, my God. But what does Jesus say to Thomas? He says there in John 20, verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those that have not seen me and yet have believed. There's a little girl who was being brought up in Sunday school and hearing all about Jesus. She had a dad that wasn't a believer. Her mom had long passed. And so one day she came to her dad and said, Dad, do you love Jesus? And her dad just kind of replied, Oh, honey, he, he died long ago. And that was the end of him. Well, then she kind of began to explain, you know, the resurrection of Jesus and everything. And, and he asked, How can I believe in someone that I haven't seen? She didn't really know how to answer that at first. And then she begins to think it through and she asks her dad, Dad, how old was I when mom passed away? He said, well, you were just six months old. And she says, well, you know what? Then that means I've never really seen Jesus or seen my mom, at least to what I can know or recall. I've never seen my mom. And yet you tell me all the time how much she loved me and what a wonderful person she was. And, and guess what? I love my mom. And I feel like I know my mom through what you told me. Suddenly, tears began to fill her father's eyes as he began to realize the, the irony of that. Is the same excuse he was using against Jesus now was invalid in comparison to these relationships that they have known and understood. And you see, it's the same for us. We can all say, well, you know, there's people that we know that we've never seen. Right? We don't, we don't know anything about them other than what has been told us. Abraham Lincoln, for instance, right? I've never seen Abraham Lincoln. How can I be sure that he's real? Now, we have eyewitness accounts. We have historical records to say that Abraham Lincoln was a real person. But if I walk around and say, ah, oh, you know what? He was just a fictional person, just a man-made-up man guy. You'd think I'm bonkers. That'd be weird for me to say that, even though I've never seen him. And it's the same with Jesus. We have a great historical record, a great eyewitness account of who Jesus is. And guess what? As I begin to get into the word of God, I begin to see Jesus on every page of his word. And I begin to get to know the God of this word. I begin to see his love for me. I'm going to hear the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is and what he's done. I have this historical record for me here that I get to go, even though I've never seen Jesus. Oh, man, I love him. I get to see him right here in his word. And I, I just simply respond as though, we love him because why? He first loved us. And he's demonstrated that to us in this love letter for us in his word. And so though we've never seen him, oh, we believe. 
And we love him and we know him. And we get to see him and, and enjoy this relationship with him as Peter is saying here. Though you not, you not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy inexpressible. The more that we get into the word of God and we begin to see Jesus here, the more that we grow in our love for him and our, our joy just increases towards his joy inexpressible. I mean, we as believers should be living life in this world where people are looking at us going, what is going on with you? Why are you so happy? Why are you so filled with joy? To where they're thinking, I want some of that. And we get to explain to them, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. How are you able to be so strong in the midst of all that you're going through? Oh, just Jesus. He's my rock. He's my strength. He's my refuge. See, happiness in this world, right? One of the, the rights written into the Constitution, isn't it? You know, the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. But joy is not dependent on your circumstances. Joy goes beyond that. Joy begins to be about Jesus and what we have in Jesus, not what we're going through in this life. So towards, as Peter says, joy inexpressible. It's like we can't even just, we can't even explain it sometimes because it's just that work of God. And it's full of glory. And it does, it brings great glory to God as we live these lives with just joy in him. And not only do we have this great, you know, work of salvation, this hope even in the midst of trials that God's doing a work in it all, but we have the blessing of seeing the reality and fruition of the salvation. This is something that those in the Old Testament didn't see in the way that we get to see it. Look at what we read here in verse 10. It says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So, you see, there was a wonderful thing that was taking place in the Old Testament. God was was bringing together this work of redemption. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's God's plan of redemption in redeeming humankind from sin. And so the Old Testament, God's giving little hints of what he's going to do. Things that the Messiah, the Christ, would have to endure and, and what would be taking place. And as Old Testament prophets were prophesying or, or recording scripture, they were speaking things that they didn't fully understand or comprehend. Because they didn't have the full picture like we have it today. Like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, and many more. They're writing things and they're trying to understand, but yet they're recording things or speaking things that they don't even know how this is all fitting together. Daniel, look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 8 to 10. He says, although I heard, I did not understand, right? 
Anybody bear witness to that? Mostly on Sundays, right? But then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Like kind of, when is this going to happen? How is this going to come to be? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So God says, Daniel, I'm giving you a sneak peek at what's to come, right? But just like we don't understand the full picture with that sneak peek, right? You watch a trailer of a movie. You don't know what the movie's going to be. If they just explain to you, you know, what happens? Who, who murdered this person? Or who ends up with, you know... So uh, if they explain all that in the trailer, you're like, I don't even see the movie. And God was just kind of giving a trailer a little bit to these prophets, giving a sneak peek of what's to come. But the fullness of what was going to be seen wasn't going to be revealed until Christ came to the world. And we began to see this plan of redemption come into fruition so these prophets spoke of things that they didn't really comprehend things like the the messiah was going to suffer they're thinking i I don't get it because the messiah to them was this one that was going to bring the promises of god and restore them and, and and bring freedom and deliverance right salvation ultimately but then how's the messiah going to suffer they thought the Messiah is going to be this great, strong political leader, leading them on into revival and victory. But suffering? How does that, I can't compute that. And they spoke of grace that would be coming to all people. How Gentiles would become a part of the family of God, how they'd be grafted in. And they're thinking, what? This stuff doesn't make sense to me. This is what prophets are dealing with. We often think, oh man, wouldn't that be great to live in the era of the prophets, to see these people at work. Wouldn't that be wonderful to live with, you know, Moses or maybe an Abraham, maybe maybe Jeremiah. No, not Jeremiah wouldn't be fun to live with. He was having to go through a lot of trials himself. That wouldn't be fun. But we think about these guys, oh, it'd be great to live in that era. And yet, you know what? They longed for the days that we live in right now. They longed to see what this was going to look like, what this would be like. You're living in the new covenant. This, this era of grace where your sins are not just covered, but taken away, removed, forgiven forevermore. I mean... We have such a blessing today and experiencing a freedom that these prophets could only dream about. So they're writing things with that kind of blurred vision of what was to come. And now with Jesus, it all comes into focus. And we see now the picture of what God has had in store all along. And we get to be recipients of that now. And even angels... Even angels, Peter says, are are watching what's unfolding with us through the salvation by grace. They're looking at all this going, this is amazing. Angels are desiring to look into it, it says, things which angels desire to look into at the end of verse 12. They're going, God, wait a second. You're, You're saving those people? You're showing love? And grace to those people, these are the people that you're going to be using 
to carry out your work. God, are you crazy? Do you know what these people are capable of? Do you know how prone they are to failure and to mistakes and to sin? God, how is it that you're... And God's like, oh, you just watch. You just just sit back and watch. I mean, they've been living for eternity with, with God and just worshiping God. But then suddenly they begin to see this work of Jesus come into play and how now the salvation has gone out to all people and forgiveness of sin brought through Jesus Christ and to where God now is choosing and saving and working through people like you and me. And the angels are going, I would never have thought that to be a possibility in a million years. That blows my mind. So what angels are designed to look into, they're seeing all this unfolding and they're thinking, that's so radical, God. And it gives them all the more reasons to keep worshiping God to say, God, you're so amazing that you would do that with them. It's incredible. And, and Paul even writes about these sorts of things in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. He says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we've been made a spectacle to the world. Notice this, both to angels and to men. It's like Paul says, we've been put on display as a spectacle to show and reveal this life lived for God and in God. Even on display to angels. And he says in Ephesians 3, verse 9 and 10, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, notices to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Who's that? It's the angels. Principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's the angels. That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by who? By who? Be made known by the who? Woo! All right, guys, I know it's time for lunch, but come on, just a couple more minutes. I knew you could do it. It's called reading. It's right there. Made known by the church. Who's the church? You and me. Us. We're put on display to reveal God's greatness. That even angels are going, man, I never would have done it that way. I wouldn't have worked with those people. But God, you're okay. Yeah, you're better than us. We get it. You can do it. And he is. It, it, it just, again, reveals this great plan of salvation. Paul refers to that as the mystery. Now, a mystery, when Paul uses it in the New Testament, is not a mystery like we would use it today where we're trying to figure out, you know, using the clues, solve a mystery, like the game of Clue, right? You know, it was Colonel Mustard using a, what was one of the things? Candlestick? Candlestick, there we go, in the den. That's it, is it? Am I right? Oh, great. I solved the mystery, right? It's not, that's not what Paul's saying. You gotta figure it out, everybody. No, a mystery to Paul, in the way that he uses it in the New Testament, is it's revealing something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but now it's become revealed to us in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. So he's saying this mystery here now, the fellowship of the mystery, is that all these people in the Old Testament, we're not seeing it fully. It was a mystery to them. They're like, what is God up to? What is he doing? I can't figure it out. You're right, it's a mystery. 
But now when Christ comes, we in the New Testament get to be participants of or enjoy this fellowship of the mystery because it reveals now that God has brought his son into the world to die for us, to bring us into life through his sacrifice. That's the plan of salvation. Jesus rose again that he might become that living hope for us now as we await our great inheritance in heaven. So no matter what you're going through in this world, the trials that might come, the difficulties you might face, understand it's temporal. It's for a little while. God has something far greater in store for you. Don't let that be a mystery to you today. Let that be something you receive, that you appropriate to yourself. This plan of salvation, like the angels who are looking down in amazement, should cause us to look at it in amazement and say, God, thank you for saving me by your grace. Thank you for all that you've done for me. May we look at this salvation afresh and anew today with amazement and behold the greatness of God for us today. This life in Christ that we get to enjoy is an extreme privilege. And maybe you're here today and this is all new to you and you're going, man, I've never known this before. Listen, the the reality is, is that we all need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from our sin. We're all guilty of that. We've all broken God's commandments, which means we've been separated from God. We're guilty before God. We don't have a hope. We don't have eternal life in heaven. You might think, well, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because I've been a good person. I've done good things. That doesn't get you in because we can never do enough. That's why God sent his son Jesus into this world as the only perfect sinless one, fully God, fully man, the one that was able to to die in our place because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So Jesus died on a cross to take the penalty of your sin and my sin. And a great transaction took place on the cross is that he took our sin but exchanged it then for his righteousness. So that all those that put their faith in Jesus now can stand before God, not with their good works, but with the righteousness of Christ, of Jesus. That's how we stand. That's our our living hope, to know that I don't go to heaven because of what I do. I go to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. The question is, have you put your faith in him? Has your faith been tested? Maybe it's been rocky, but today's the day to say, I want my faith to be secure in you, Jesus. I want to know that I'm in you. And I'm not holding on to or trusting in any other thing. You are the living hope. And that's it. There's nothing else to put your hope in. But Jesus, have you done that today? Is your salvation secure? Is your faith anchored in Christ? So that no matter what comes, you can be steadfast in the faith. That's why Peter's writing this for us here. Put your faith in Jesus today and keep holding on to him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and we'll close our service with just a time of response and worship as we sing to Jesus, as we thank him for all that he's done for us. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your savior, you don't know where you're going when you die. All you need to say is, Lord, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I'm I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sin. And I want to look to you to 
be my Lord and my Savior. Come into my life and he'll do that. He does it free of charge. It's not through your works or your effort. It's through faith and trust in him. Would you do that today? Just look to him. Call it to him. And, and after our service, we'll have people up here to pray with you. We'd love to do so. And if you want to know more about what it means to be saved, to be a child of God, they'd love to share with you about that too. So let's stand together. We take some time to worship and sing. Lord, we thank you for this word here today and the truth and the hope that we have because of it. Lord, may we be those standing secure in our faith and anchored to you, Jesus, that when storms blow in and trials come, that it would not move us, it would not, it would not worry us, but Lord, rather we'll stand strong and, and see that our faith just becomes tested, tried, but trusted faith as we look to you and hold on to you jesus thank you that you don't allow anything to happen lord that's to our detriment but ultimately always for our good it's revealed in that plan of salvation lord nothing but good in store and we know the best is yet to come still so we thank you for that lord i pray this in your name amen